So you guys all talked about um, what God looks like to you, and I want to share with you what my own, my first memory of God, or at least um, I'm sure there was one before this, but this was my first impression of God, is when I was about six or seven years old. My mother told me that if you lie, I'm, God is going to come and pull your tongue out at night. Yeah, I see your face. Pretty shocking, right? But yeah, this, uh, I... I'm probably pretty traumatized by this because I remember it so vividly. And um, so this was the first in a series of pretty terrifying things that I heard about God. My view of God at this age was one of an angry parent figure, one that if I did anything wrong, then I would be punished. If something bad was happening to me, it was because I was being punished for something. And this was um, being communicated to me by my mother and my aunt, who was a staunch Catholic. And for me, God was a God that I had to tiptoe around, one that I had to always praise and never anger, and uh, I had to do all of these things so that bad things wouldn't happen to me. So I see some of you are nodding your heads. So as I got older, um, this didn't change. I moved to Australia, I went to a different church, and this was still reinforced. I was told that I was single because God was shaping me and forming me into the perfect woman. So yeah, right? So then um, that translated to me that I was imperfect, that I wasn't godly enough, I wasn't spiritual enough. Now I can't tell you how many times I've read the book of Genesis thinking, if only I can just read the Bible from cover to cover, then I'll be perfectly spiritual and ready for marriage. But it didn't matter. I wasn't enough. So it was a combination of these truths that formed my relationship with God. I needed to always do right, to strive for perfection. Until then, I wasn't enough. So I know some of you were nodding your head earlier. Can any of you relate to this? And for those of you who think that this view might be an oversimplified view or outdated view, I would argue that it isn't. Um, a few weeks ago, I was reading on Facebook, the source of all my knowledge. Um, <laughs> I was reading the comments section, don't do that. And uh, I was reading that people, so I was reading about the hurricanes and people were attributing the hurricanes to God unleashing God's wrath on God's people for sinning and forgetting about God. Yes, the hurricanes were as a result of God's wrath, not global warming, not hurricane season, but an angry God punishing mankind. And that's really how some people view God's character. But what about how we view God physically? Close your eyes for a moment. I promise I won't take anything. When I say God, what image pops into your mind? Okay, now open your eyes. I'm willing to bet that 90% of you did not think of a woman. Am I right? So if it's not a God, an angry God, that's, that's an image that's popularized, then it's God as male. And even you can't deny this. From worship songs, popular culture, art, TV, Movies like Bruce Almighty, the image of God that is most popularly portrayed is that of male. But we know that this isn't who God is. We know that God isn't a man. We know that God doesn't have a gender. 
We, but we still refer to God as Father, and we still use this language when we speak of God or even pray to God. So why is this a problem? What's the big deal? Well, there are two problems um, with when you refer to God as only male, and one of them is that it limits our view of the character of God. We, when, we limit to God as only, when we limit God to only male, we assume stereotypically male character traits of God. And so our experience is then limited to how we relate to the masculinity of God. So we, if we see God as king or as father, then our experience of God is just limited to how we view God as a power figure or an authoritarian. So already, our relationship with God is broken because we aren't experiencing the wholeness of God. This, in turn, affects how we relate to others because we don't value the female image of God in ourselves and in others. When we limit God to male, we exclude God's feminine qualities. We don't value those qualities in ourselves, and then we don't feel enough because we don't see the image of God in us, and we don't see ourselves in God. And then there's a ripple effect. When we don't value those qualities in ourselves, we don't value those qualities in other people that have those qualities. And that is a problem. So then, how did we get to this place? How did we start seeing God this way? So some theologians conclude that a person's image of God is an extension of themselves, and that you can learn a lot from their culture because of this. Pete Rollins talks about, Pete Rollins talks about this in Rob Bell's podcast. He says that people's image of God becomes a bigger version of themselves. So from their view of God, we can learn something about their culture, their values, and their beliefs. Now, I'm not sure what that speaks of, of the angry God that I grew up with, if I was like a smaller version of an angry God. <laughs> you know, I, but I do think there is some truth to that image that I held, and it's that power and authority were attributes to be admired. It was something that you aspired to. And so you see, this becomes problematic because ultimately, the character of God becomes a social construct. It becomes something that we form based on the values of a culture in that time. So if then, our reflection of God is a reflection of our culture and values, then it's possible that the reason why we see God God's physical being has always looked like an old man in the sky with a long beard. It's possible it has to do with that. Does anyone know where that image came from? So it's possible that, um, that it, it came from the conversion of the early Greeks. Who knows Zeus? What does Zeus look like? An old man with a beard. That's right. So now I lost my place. So this image still carries today in ancient art and through popular culture. And this image of Zeus even um, influenced language. So Zeus sounds like the Latin word for God, which is Dios. And so this image and this language use spread. Soon everyone was seeing God as an angry man in the sky throwing thunderbolts at everyone and thinking that this was truth. But the writers of the Old Testament when they wrote of God speaking of God's self and referring to God's self by name, God says, I am who I am, or I am who I shall be. And that's in Exodus 3.14. 
this use of the first-person first, first verb to be gives no indication of gender at all. It's not he or she, it's completely gender-neutral. And the Hebrew translation of this verb that refers to God is Y-H-W-H, which is a non-pronounceable word, but you might have heard of this as Yahweh. And now Yahweh is a word that's spoken, that, that isn't spoken because out of respect for the divinity of this name, it's so holy and so sacred. So instead of spoken, it's read as Lord. And, but the word Lord connotes a male authority figure. It connotes a king or a male leader. And some of you might be thinking, but Mira, when I pray, I use the word Lord. I say the word king because I believe that God is powerful, but I know that God isn't a literal king. I use the word father when I pray, but I know he's not my literal biological father. I know that he isn't a literal man. But the thing is, because of gender-skewed imagery and language, religious leaders have taken this and used this to reinforce patriarchy. They use the creation of God as an authoritative male to reinforce that men are at the top of the hierarchy and being complacent in our language, we've reinforced that ideology. And you can see this patriarchal ideology throughout the Bible. From Abraham being promised land and referred to as the father of nations, to verses calling on women to submit to their husbands and referring to women as property of their father and their husband. In Exodus 20, 21, a woman is constantly referred to as property of her father. Exodus 20, 17, one of the Ten Commandments reads, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So wife, servant, maid, ox, donkey, they are all described as property belonging to the man of the household. In Exodus 21, laws are outlined on how to traffic women. There are guidelines on how a father can sell his daughter as a slave and how a man can buy a wife for his slave. Leviticus 12 reads that when a woman bears a son, she's ceremoniously unclean for seven days. But if she bears a daughter, she's ceremoniously unclean for twice as long. In Leviticus 27, children are priced as property. Boys are priced at five shekels of silver and girls at three shekels of silver. A girl is worth less than. Throughout the Bible, we see that the position of father is at the top, that father owns the land and the property, including wives, mistresses, children, power and authority are his. He is divinely appointed. Just like Moses was appointed to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, the father's rules are unquestionable, unfathomable, unfallible unfallible, and that whatever he says goes. So if it's selling his own child, you don't question it. And this hierarchy made women less than. Their thoughts, their worth, their bodies were less than. So this affected how men related to women and formed the justification of the treatment of women they were, who were then oppressed, seen as less worthy, who are demonized and reduced to bodies to be adorned instead of seen as intelligent beings and treated as such. 
This damaged the relationship men had with women then, and it still damages that relationship today. What's more is when the projection of God is an of, a, of an authoritative male figure, it leaves little room for a child or a woman or a young girl to see where they fit in this picture. Using the word Lord for God and using male pronouns gives little room for women and children to find themselves in the image of God. It's not popular to hear of God as a nurturing mother or as sensitive or as hurting like a woman in labor. Even if it's written in the Bible, it's not language that is spoken about as often. We don't use that imagery enough. Instead, God as Father is hyper-emphasized. And we've made God as Father the only concrete way to experience God because God as Creator, God as Divine, is so foreign and so distant. And so we focused on that one metaphor, Father, and made it literal. In fact, the truth is, the Old Testament uses many metaphors for God. In Deuteronomy 34, it says, He is the rock. Not the actor, but um, <laughs> the rock. God is eagle in Exodus 19.4. God is a mother in Isaiah 66.13. As Lila read, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. And this one's my favorite. In Isaiah 42.14, for a long time, I have kept silent. I've been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out. I gasp and pant. <sighs> So you see, we weren't meant to limit our view of God to just man, Lord, or Father. We weren't meant to exclude the femininity of God. But there is the question of how Jesus referred to God, because he used the word Father, right? So if Jesus said that God is a man, then, then he must be. That's what Jesus said. And to that, yes. Jesus did refer to God as Abba, but this is the Aramaic and very personal word for father, um, which loosely translates to daddy. And it's like, and Jesus was doing what he did best, which was to continuously upend the status quo of that time. And so in this case, what he was doing was overthrowing the misconception of a distant and angry God. And in doing so, he introduces us to a more progressive view of God, one who is more like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, who isn't one that punishes, but one whose love was greater, one who embraces, one who celebrates the son, even if he's been foolish. And you know what? This sounds like a loving father today, but back then, it was revolutionary because Jesus was representing a God that was a non-patriarchal father. That's how progressive he was. Jesus takes it even further by alluding to God's female character. He does this when he speaks of the parable of the lost coin that Asha read earlier. He does this when he speaks of the parable of the yeast, where God is a baker's woman, kneading dough and adding yeast to it so that it can grow. God relates, Jesus relates to God's more feminine qualities and calls us to relate to them too. By highlighting them, he takes value in those qualities. By taking value in them, he's giving voice and worth to women and God's female character. God, Jesus calls us to a more progressive view of God. 
Even the essence of who Jesus is, is tearing hierarchy down. Jesus enters this world as the son of God. He doesn't come as a, as a, as a king, but he's born the illegitimate child of a homeless teenage daughter, uh, woman, mother. He came humble. He nurtured the sick. He was a peacemaker. He was a friend of outcasts. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't competitive. Now, these are stereotypically feminine traits. Nurturer, friend, humble. Those weren't qualities of a powerful prince or king or lord. Even today, they aren't necessarily selling points on your resume. But what's more, Jesus was celibate. He never married, so he didn't participate in patriarchy by taking ownership of a woman. He didn't have any children that he could control or dominate. And this was all very deliberate in Jesus' part in shaking up the social structure back then and doing what was expected of him as a man. Sandra Schneider talks about this in her book, Women and the Word, and she concludes that 2,000 years ago, in a heavily patriarchal world, only a man could have defended the woman caught in adultery and changed the way she would be treated and people like her should be treated. Only a man in a patriarchal world could have spoken to the woman at the well and restored her, her self-worth. Only a man in a patriarchal world could challenge other men to abandon their preconceptions of superior, superiority over others. Only the Son of God would have been taken seriously as the ultimate sacrifice. Because Jesus was a man in a patriarchal world, his actions were revolutionary. But now, we need to revolutionize the way we see God because our image of God matters. Because if God is largely a construction of how we view ourselves and how we view others, then we need to see, we need to change the way we see God. We need to see God as bigger than the limits bound by our imagery so that we can experience the wholeness of God and not just part of it. Our soul is ministered to according to our needs. God can meet us where we're at. So if we need a friend, God is there. If we need mother, God is there. If we need soul healing, God is there. And this came, became truth for me when I watched the movie The Check. Has anyone seen the movie or read the book? Yeah, so I read the book 10 years ago, and then when I saw the movie, it impacted me differently. The movie is a story of a man whose uh, youngest child has been murdered, and the story is of him mourning that. And so God appears to him as a black woman to give him comfort. That is what his spirit needed. He needed to see God as a black woman, to forgive God for the death of his daughter. He needed to see God this way, to, to see that God mourns the death of his daughter, and to understand that God wants him to be whole again. You see, this man had a terrible relationship with his abusive father. So seeing God as father would not have healed his soul. He needed to see God as mother. So spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, as later on in the movie, he's challenged to forgive his daughter's killer. And at that point, God then appears to him as a Native American man. And now you can interpret that however way you'd like, but the point is, that the character trait of God that he needed to forgive his daughter's killer was that which was reflected in the persona of a Native American man. 
had his perception of God been limited to an angry old man up in the clouds, then he would have thought that the only way his soul could be healed was for the only justice to be served to that man was for him to meet the same fate as his daughter, for that man to be punished and killed. But God is not a vengeful God. God is not an angry God. The character of God is much greater. The love of God expands much further. So ask yourself, how do you perceive God? Do you see God as a nurturer, or have you seen God as a patriarch for too long? Have you allowed yourself to see God differently, like this man in the shack? Have you been lacking in your relationship of God because you haven't allowed yourself to see God differently? Because you can. You have the permission to see God in God's entirety. And your soul can be ministered to by God the nurturer, if that is who you need. By God the cornerstone of strength, if that is who you need, just like the man from the shack. Consequently, when you open your spirit to receive the vastness and the enormity of God's character, you can see the image of God in other people. If you see God as compassionate, then you value compassionate people and you see God in them. If you see God as nurturing, you, valuing, you value nurturing people and you see God in them. If you see the image of God in a woman who is stereotypically depicted as gentle, sensitive, soft-spoken, you see God in them. There, these are no longer traits that have a negative association. Instead, they're seen as traits that are as a reflection of God. When you see them in yourself as a man, or when you see them in other men, you preserve them, because they are no longer a sign of weakness. It is valued as a quality of God, as a reflection of the image of God. So these commonly thought feminine traits are in all of us, regardless of our gender. But if we don't recognize them as part of God's character and see value in them, we, can't, we aren't preserving that in ourselves, and we aren't preserving those traits in the image of God. We aren't recognizing and valuing the stay-at-home dad, the woman who is transitioning, or we aren't recognizing and valuing the friend that we've labeled as a pushover for being so forgiving time and time again. My hope is that eventually we don't categorize character traits into masculine and feminine because they don't fall into neat little boxes that way and they aren't meant to be. Patriarchy hurts men as well as it hurts women because we insist on categorizing like this. Instead, all of these attributes should all be valued as parts of who God created us to be. So I challenge you, to master a new way of thinking of God as having all of these attributes, because that is progressive. It becomes a two-way street, because if we can master a new way to think of God as an expression of a greater love, as being more expansive than simply father or a person of authority, then we can express, we can embrace the female expression of God in women. It's embraced in women as well as in men. It's encouraged and it's valued. Sandra Schneiders writes that, just as the self and world images can be healed, so can the God image. So let's begin that healing process by speaking of God differently, not exclusively as male. 
Let's begin that healing process by acknowledging God as mother and God as woman so that we can tap into God as nurturer, God as merciful, God as patient. We can preserve the female image of God inside all of us. And then we can begin to value the image of God in every woman, in every child, and in everyone. Sophia Lyon Fass explains this so beautifully in her poem, It Matters What We Believe, and here are a few lines. Some beliefs are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feeling of being especially privileged. Other beliefs are expansive and lead the way into wider and deeper sympathies. Some beliefs are divisive, separating saved from unsaved, friends from enemies. Other beliefs are bonds in a world community where sincere differences beautify the pattern. Let us pray. God, you are father, you are mother, you are everything and in between. You are infinite and beyond comprehension. Our words can only do so much to describe you. I ask that you awaken in us a desire to know the vastness of your love and ask you to open our hearts to receive it. I ask you open our eyes to the diversity of your image in the world around us so that we can better honor your creation as you intended. I ask that in this room, you begin to heal those that could not see your presence in them or who saw that the God-given attributes that you placed in them were weaknesses. I ask that you begin to show them their value and their worth and that who they are is a reflection of who you are. Amen.